Well, again, welcome and so glad that you're here with us. This week, we come to the end of the art of seeing Jesus. Uh, We've been hoping throughout this time that what would happen is that we would see Jesus and that seeing him would change us. And we've heard from many of you uh, that the outcome has been really positive. Uh, There's been many encouraging reports to me and others that along the way over these six weeks, as we've been guided by these excellent artists to see the stories of Jesus better, that a lot of you have found your faith growing. And that has been such an encouragement to me and to others on staff. And we also know that not everyone will have had the same experience. Uh, In week three, for example, uh, many of you will have noticed that my bow tie disappeared. And some of you will think, what happened to the bow tie? And then others will think, he finally got the message. (laughs) And by the way, that video that you've just watched, that was put together by Paul Madsen. Our, Our resident comedian is also good at making motion pictures. Can we thank Paul for that? Right? Some of you will think he should stick with motion pictures and drop the comedy. But the uh, verdict is still out, Paul. It was okay. Uh, Listen, it is true that we will all have different experiences when we come together in a place like this. And we will all have different visions when we come to see Jesus. Last week at Easter, I, I had the great privilege of talking about the resurrection. And I know for many of you, the news that Jesus has arisen and that he's alive and that he's with you, even though you can't always see him, was a heartening experience. But we also must know that for others who were gathered here last week, that news is just too hard to believe. And so when I stand and I say, Jesus is alive, some of us are so excited to hear that, but others say, I wish I could believe that. I would like it if I did, but I cannot. And that's just true. And before we draw a line that's too definite around people who don't believe and people who do, the other fact is that those of us who do believe will come to places in life inevitably where the question marks become more profound than the exclamation points. Where we were close to Jesus at one time, but now life has come to the place where the affection has grown very cold and he feels quite far away. And maybe each step will make us think, perhaps it was all not true. That's a fact. And what is remarkable about the story which we have been following together, the events which begin with Jesus' betrayal and arrest, and then crucifixion, and then death, and then resurrection, which we looked at last week, is that one week after his resurrection, there is a story told in the Gospel of John, which puts before the community of faith the subject which will be ours this morning, and that is the subject of doubt. And it's an important one for us to address so long as we are going to be an honest community. And I want you to understand that I have no interest at all in making believe. And doubt can be that kind of thing which is hard to know how to deal with. And so what we're going to do this morning is in the same way that the New Testament recollection of what happened with Jesus does, is sit together one last time before the subject of doubt. And we're going to do that to learn something which will be 
helpful if we'll learn in, in a few ways, which will be helpful for those among us here who have more doubt than confidence. What we'll see will help the people who are there. And then secondly, also, it will be helpful for those of us who have more confidence than doubt so that we know how to be individuals and, from my perspective as the lead pastor of Renaissance, even more importantly, so that we know how to be a church that responds faithfully when there are those who have doubt in our midst. And I suspect this will be helpful, not just for us together here as a church, but for all of us, because I bet there's not one of you, not one of you here, who doesn't know someone who you care about a lot, and you just wish that they could come to faith. I know I'm right about that. You wish they would believe. And you know, they might too. They might wish for that as well. And, and that's why this is a pressing question. What do we do when there's doubt? Now, I want you to take a look uh, with me at this painting here. Uh, this is a painting which captures uh, the moment in which one of the most notorious doubters actually comes to believe and even if you don't know anything about the Bible and you've never read it and you don't know the details of the story, you probably will have heard of the character called Doubting. Help me out here. Thomas. Um, the reason you know about him is, is, broadly speaking, the cultural understanding of this particular man is that he was singularly important for the fact that he doubted. And he also is often presented as if he's unique for that reason. Uh, this painting here is the moment in which his doubt is overcome and was painted by Caravaggio, the artist who came from Italy, who uh, we've spent now uh, three weeks on his paintings. And for me personally, he's one of my absolute favorites. He painted the scene of Judas betraying Jesus in the garden the first week that we spent uh, in this series, we saw that painting. He painted the Easter painting, which we looked at last week, the Supper in Emmaus. He painted this, all three of them, in the period of 1601 to 1602. Can you imagine being that productive in, in such a short period of time? Uh, this painting captures uh, the events that took place one week after Easter, it, where there Jesus appears and overcomes Thomas's doubt in the presence of those other disciples who believed, and in the way that it's crafted, and this is why Caravaggio is worth attending to. In the, way, in the way in which he structures the scene, you notice how obvious it is that he has taken pains to paint it just so. What we'll see from him uh, and, and through the texts that we're going to look at in a moment are three lessons uh, which I hope will enrich you personally, uh, us as a church altogether, and help us be more faithful to our calling. And what we'll see is first what to do in the community of faith, when you are the doubter. And I know that at least one of you here are the doubter. And so the first thing I want us to see together through the story is what you ought to do. And, and already you're doing it because here you are. But we're going to spend some time there. Secondly, we'll see what to do as a community with those who doubt. And, and many of you here have more faith than doubt. And here you are, thinking, oh, if only my friend or my spouse or my family member or that person I care about were here because they doubt, you're going to see something about how to be with them. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, what we'll all see, which we all need to see, since there's a little bit of Thomas in all of us and maybe a lot in all of us, is how Jesus deals with doubt. Those are the three things we'll see. 
Now, before I read the events that uh, were behind this painting, I want to give you the background of what happened the week before this took place. This is critical. Okay, I want you to uh, use your imagination. It's Friday. All of the disciples see Jesus die. Then on Saturday, they stay in the city. And on Sunday evening, they decide to gather together in the room. Now, it doesn't say for sure, but I, I think it's likely that it was the same place where they shared that supper with Jesus. If not, that's not a big deal. Those who were disappointed by Jesus' death are all together. And they're probably sharing how awful it is. When they'd heard in the morning that some women saw uh, somehow the angels or they encountered the risen Jesus, and they're still having a hard time believing it, but there they are in the room when one of them decides that he's not going to stay with them. And his name is Thomas. And all together in the room, they decide to be there, but Thomas can't stomach it. And in that moment, without Thomas there, Jesus appears to the disciples who are gathered. This is on that first Sunday. If you were here for Easter, you heard me talk about the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to them while they were on the road, and then in Jerusalem. How did he do that? Well, he's, he's risen from the grave. He can do whatever he wants, right? He disappears from there. He appears with them. They're moved, and they receive from him a word of peace. And as you can imagine, that would be the most important thing to hear in that moment because they had no peace because they watched him die just a few days before, and now he breathes peace upon them. He gives them the spirit, and he lets them see the wounds on his hand and the cut in his side, so there's no doubt. And then Jesus disappears. And then the action picks up in verse 24, and I want you to see this. Again, this is the Sunday before this happens. Okay, the, the day on which Jesus rose. In verse 24, here's what it says about that moment when Jesus appeared to the disciples and they disappeared. 24 says, But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, that is when he returned, they told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. I want you to use your imagination and try to put yourself in the position of Thomas. Okay, it's the Sunday morning of the first Easter. And now as everyone gathers in that upper room to grieve, you decide that before the doors are locked, you want to go off by yourself because you're one of those people who when it comes to having to suffer through disappointment, you'd rather be alone than with a group. Are any of you in here like that? Okay, that was Thomas. So they're all sharing their sorrow in that room with the doors locked and Thomas is wandering somewhere alone in the night. Uh, maybe he's walking through the city streets where he remembered being with his friend Jesus or he's off in the garden where they had prayed. And whatever, wherever he is, he's alone and he is filled with grief because no matter how you know Thomas, he was most certainly devoted to Jesus in his life. He loved him. He loved him and he gave his life to walk with him. And now he's grieving by himself. And then when he comes back to the room where the other disciples are, as he approaches and as he enters, instead of finding them sad like they were when he left, he finds them happy and jubilant. And of course, his confusion immediately gives way 
to another emotion, which is disbelief. When they tell him, the reason we're so happy is Jesus appeared. And we saw him, he's alive, but Thomas cannot believe. That means he cannot put himself in the position where he accepts something as true, which simply does not seem true to him. And so he says, I can't believe. And then he says, unless these things happen, I won't. That is, he is, in this moment, a doubter amongst a bunch bunch of people who believe. And here I want to pause on the story for a minute, and I want to point out something about doubt and faith. Okay, doubt is, quite simply, the moment where you find yourself in a position where, in good conscience, you cannot say that you believe something which you don't. You cannot give mental assent to a proposition which you don't believe. That's doubt. And now many people would think that because that's what doubt is, it can never exist alongside Christian faith. And I understand this way of thinking. That is, if Christian faith is the ability to give mental assent to a certain set of propositions about God or about Jesus or about what you believe, then of course faith and doubt cannot exist together. They're antithetical. They're the opposite of one another. But of course, here's the problem. And and I want you to see this quite plainly in what happens in this story. The trouble there is that that definition of faith is not accurate to what the way that the New Testament describes faith. Okay, here's why. It's very simple. Faith in the New Testament is not about a person's relationship to a set of ideas. And, And often we mean by belief a person's relationship to a set of ideas. So the understanding makes, the misunderstanding makes sense to me. In the New Testament, faith or belief are not about your relationship to ideas, but rather about your relationship to a person. It would be very helpful for us, I think, to understand accurately what the New Testament means by faith or belief if we would replace it with the word trust or entrust every time we read it. That is, what Jesus wanted is he wanted men and women to trust him. He wanted men and women to believe in him, to have faith in him, and by that, he did not mean give mental assent to certain ideas about me, although that's a part of it. More importantly, he meant be in the kind of relationship with me where you trust me. And do you see the difference? Uh, Here's an image that might help you. Imagine a father with a child who's just now old enough to stand and jump off things, but not old enough to realize what a stupid idea that is. And the father comes over to the child and says, jump into my hands. And in this moment, the child will either jump or not. And whether or not the child jumps comes down to whether he decides to believe in his father or to have faith in his father. It's not about his ideas first, it's about whether he trusts. Do you see that? And so what Jesus wanted his people to trust. And the fact about doubt and faith, doubt and belief, is that it is possible to go on trusting someone even when it's hard to give mental assent to certain ideas about them because they're more than a set of ideas. Do you see that? So here comes Thomas into the gathering of people who believe that Jesus did come from the grave. Now, that is a cognitive proposition which they give mental assent to. He has arisen because of their experience with him. They believe that. And here comes another who says, I cannot believe it. And now the question is, first, this is the first lesson for us from this story. What does the doubter do when in the community of faith, there's more doubt than belief? What then? Okay, there's common options. First, try to pretend to yourself that you believe something you don't. 
And there will be certain church environments that will make you feel like that's what you're supposed to do. If you start to doubt something, an idea, you're supposed to hide it. That's one strategy. A second strategy is if you can't hide it from yourself, well, at least do everything you can to hide it from the people around you that you have doubt. That's a second strategy that people will often adopt in a community of faith when it comes to not being able to believe certain things. Both of those strategies, listen, they both don't work and neither one of them is what Thomas does in this moment. You saw it, didn't you? He came right into their midst and he said, I do not believe. I don't. He didn't hide it from himself or them. And then he quite simply said, here's what would need to happen if I would believe. And in this moment, the individual Thomas is exemplary for everyone in this place who has more doubt than belief, who has uh, alongside their trust lots of things that they can't believe. Here's the example for you. It is, first, don't pretend to yourself. Second, don't hide it from the people around you. And then thirdly, put into simple words what would need to be true for you personally to come to the place where you believe. That's what Thomas does, all three of them. And now, you've, you've heard him called Doubting Thomas, right? Because of this story, but it's such a goofy name for him. And not because he doesn't doubt, he most surely does, but because he is most absolutely not the only one who doubts. You might be thinking, oh, it's too bad my child or my friend or my spouse who's got so many doubts isn't here because they would have benefited from the doubting Thomas story. No, Thomas is not the only one who doubts. In the resurrection accounts, all of the disciples doubt. You heard me talk about it last week if you were here on the road to Emmaus. Those men heard from the women that Jesus arose and to them it seemed as an idle tale. They didn't believe it. And in the, the Gospel of Mark, same story. The women come and tell others, the disciples will not believe it. It doesn't seem true. Over and again it happens in the Gospel of Matthew, at the end of that Gospel, even when the risen Jesus appears to everybody who's gathered on the mountain, and maybe you've heard of the Great Commission, church people like to talk about that, they don't often bring up the fact that as Jesus was there and they worshipped him, this is what it says in the Bible, but some doubted. Did you get that? Jesus is leading a worship service. And some people are there like, I don't really believe. He's the worship leader. This, he's way more impressive than Dave Macaron. And, and people, he's there, and they're like, I still can't believe. And so this is a lesson for every one of us, because we'll all have doubts now and then. And the lesson is, don't try to hide your doubt from yourself. You don't need to hide it from other people. And listen now, this only works, and this is our second lesson, this only works if the community who believes has received the lesson that's in this story. Because you know what the easiest thing to do if you're a Christian and you start to doubt and if you decide not to hide it from yourself or others, you know what the easiest thing to do is? Stay home on Sunday and watch cartoons in your pajamas. Some of you are like, have you ever thought, like, I kind of wish I could do that on a Sunday morning? Have you? You don't, you're like, do I, am I supposed to admit this in front of the pastor? <laughs> I've, I've wished for that before, and I'm a pastor, right? You, you might decide I should remove myself from the community if I doubt. But the second lesson for us this morning is for those who do believe, and it is that we must be a community that makes space for people who do not believe like we do. And we must create an environment where even if there's much more doubt than faith, there would be the ability to be present here. That's the second lesson, and we'll see it in what happens next. Because after, after Thomas tells them, I will not believe on the first Sunday of Easter, 
This is what happens a week later. Look at verse 26, and there's going to be our second lesson here. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. And I pause here with this very brief statement because already in this brief statement, there are two lessons for us that are extremely important. For us as a church of individuals and for those who doubt, okay, first, you notice the way that John describes it. It is a week later. I want someone's help here. What day was it? What day of the week does that mean uh, this happened on? Help me out here. Sunday, thank you. There's a reason why Christians meet for worship on Sunday. It started on the very first Sunday because that's when Jesus arose from the dead. And the early church decided right off the bat, since his resurrection is the most important thing to us, since the fact that he didn't stay dead gives everything that we've trusted verisimilitude. It means it is true. He is real. Since that happened, they decided every Sunday from now on, we're going to meet together to celebrate that fact. And this, this action takes place on the same day of the week, in the same place. And that means, without any question, that this action here happened at a worship service where all of the disciples were together celebrating the resurrection. That's the first fact of this statement. And then you see the second half of the clause. And Thomas was also there. Listen, he does not believe in the resurrection. And he is with those who've gathered to celebrate the resurrection. And that means something extraordinarily significant because this gathering was not big enough for Thomas to go hide in the balcony so that no one knew he was there. They all knew he was there and they all were together and they knew that here we are celebrating something which our friend does not believe. And there's two lessons here that are extremely important for us. First, some communities might decide that if a significant portion of us stop believing in something or don't believe in something, let's make sure we don't offend them and the way we'll do that is by removing any reference to that thing from our gathered time together. When we worship, let's not talk about Jesus too much because people who don't believe in him will have a hard time being there with us. I'll tell you now, a lot of churches strategize in just this way when they want to be open to outsiders. Now listen, I'm going to talk specifically about Renaissance Church. We want to be open to people who don't believe we must always, as long as I'm a leader here, I will do everything I can to remind us over and over again that we're not going to be a church that honors Jesus if we don't have room here for people who do not believe like we do. That's what we exist for, right? right. And so the strategy of saying, let's make space for them, and the way we're going to do that is be sure to edit out anything and everything that they might not believe. We might think that's a good strategy. It's not. It's not. We should always be confident and secure in what we believe in front of the people around us. We should. And that goes for when we're gathered at church and also when we're with our families and our friends. If you have to hide your faith, you haven't yet got to the place where your faith is genuine. And then don't hide it. Just be and believe who you are when you're with the people around you who don't believe. That's completely good and our calling to do together as Christians. But here, the second fact is equally important and it's hard to do. We have to learn to do that in such a way that Thomas can be with us and not feel like he doesn't belong. And here it is very difficult to do. It is very common for churches that say, we will be confident in what we believe to create a message either indirectly or directly that communicates to people who do not believe like we do that you are not really welcome until you change your mind and think like we do. 
It is very easy to do that. It's easy to do that with our language, with our looks, with the way we value different people based on their own faith to create an environment that, in fact, does not have room for the person who doesn't think like we do about all the subjects that matter to us, who does not hold our faith, not just on small things, but even on things as significant as the resurrection. The fact that in this moment, Thomas is still with them at worship, that should be for us a challenge as a church to always and everywhere work at believing what we believe and being honest about that in such a way that someone who doesn't believe is still able to be there present with us. Does it sound to you like a challenge that's too great? No, good, thank you. If you said yes, I'd say too bad, get over it. We're gonna do it. (laughs) And I'm serious. And I hope that there are some now who are here feeling not judged or uncomfortable because they don't believe like others. I hope they're feeling like, thank God that I can be amongst other believers who won't kick me out because I'm not where they are. And that should be assuring. And that's the reason I say that is because Thomas didn't believe and everybody knew it. And yet they celebrate the resurrection with him there. You know, I'm going to tell you why they did it. And this is why we should do this. It wasn't because they were the nicest group of people ever. Okay? Newsflash. Every church has people in it who are rotten and mean and always will. Sorry. But that, like, if I burst your bubble, get over it. That's going to be true about every place, including ours. It's because they've decided together to believe that more important than Thomas's faith is God's commitment to Thomas. Did you hear that? That Jesus' love for each and every person matters more to God than where each and every person is in terms of how they can believe. And that might, might be surprising, but it's true. That Jesus died for people who didn't believe in him. Not for the ones who believed just, but for all of us. And so the community with that deep trust in God's benevolence in Christ can tolerate disbelief in its midst. That's the second lesson here for us. And I hope it's a personal challenge to the church, but to you with the people in your life who don't believe like you do. Uh, There's a third lesson then that comes as the community is able to make space for Thomas and go on believing what they believe without hiding it. And that's in what comes next after we hear that they're gathered together on the same day of the week and Thomas is there. In the second part of verse 26, here's what we read. Now, although the doors were shut, just like last Sunday, Jesus came and stood among them just as it had happened last week. Peace be with you. This time he says the same thing, but now Thomas is there. And then verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. There, when Thomas is with the others who believe, even though he doesn't, Jesus shows up when the community of believers makes space for the doubter and goes on trusting Jesus. They believed what they'd heard Jesus say years earlier, which was when two or three are gathered in my name, and some of you will know this promise, then I will also be there with you. When they first heard Jesus say it, they had one idea about what it meant, but now after meeting with him after he died, it meant something new, and now as they were there with their friend who couldn't believe, it yet again meant something new. And what it means is when the doubter is not pressured to hide her doubt and the community of faith has space for the doubter, what it means is then Jesus shows up and does exactly what the doubter needs to believe. And that's what God wants. 
God does not want you to wallow in your doubt or take pride in your doubt or to go on clinging to it. He wants you to let it go, to put your hand in his wounds so that you personally come to faith and you get to live the life that comes when you believe. How long will it take? A week? I don't know. It might take a lot longer than a week, okay? It, it, it should not make us think that if I doubt like Thomas did this Sunday, the next Sunday it'll happen. Let's hope it does, but maybe it won't. But what does happen is Jesus is faithful when he shows up and he gives Thomas what he needs. And you see the words that Thomas speaks in that moment? He gets to call Jesus Lord. And that means he gets to join the glad company of men and women who regard Jesus as their master, who are able to give up on trying to be their own Lord. Because every one of us will always find when we try to be our own Lord that we ruin everything. And he gets to join the company that says, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. Will he have doubts again in life? Of course he will. It's a relationship with a living person. There'll be plenty of moments where it's hard to believe, but he now gets to trust Jesus. And then he calls him my God. You see that? Thomas is the only person in the New Testament who ever directly addresses Jesus as my God, which means the doubter, we've all learned to call him the doubter, has the most rich and powerful theological confession of faith of anyone in the New Testament. He alone calls Jesus my God right to his face. And that should give hope that can live right alongside doubt that there will be a day as long as you are confident to be honest about your doubt, and we have space that Jesus will show up and do what needs to be done. And if, if, if there's someone who's not here who doubts, you can have that confidence for them. And now listen, you can also choose to let the deeper message of this story guide your way with that person. That is to give you confidence in regards to that person and to be free from carrying the burden of their doubt yourself. You don't have to. And to stop trying to strategize how you personally will overcome their doubt. You're not able to do that, and you're not called to do it either. Okay, I want you to look with me at the painting again here, because here you're going to see that Caravaggio understood this, and he captured it in a magnificent way on the canvas. Now, one of the most obvious things when you look at this is how clearly... He structured the faces of the characters on the canvas. Uh, if you just notice their shape, you'll see that they form a diamond. And that was on purpose. Caravaggio wanted us to see, listen to this, that people who believe can and should be pressed right up against people who do not believe. That should not... Enough of separating around the things we can't agree about, okay? That's what he's saying here. For too long, that's how it's been. So here, we're all together. And, and then secondly, and when we do that, when the ones who believe are right there with the ones who don't believe, there will always be another partner there, Jesus, who will be right there like we're all pressed together into this little diamond. And then if you look at these figures, the story is told through their eyes and where they look. And I know it's hard to see, okay? So here, the gift of technology is gonna help us. If we start with the figure on the bottom and we look at where does he look, and, and draw an arrow, we'll see that Thomas gazes in one direction. And now if we go around the diamond counterclockwise, up to the right, this one, we don't know his name, but the one who believes looks in a different direction. And then if we continue on, we see yet a third direction. And it seems now that all of those who are Jesus followers are looking in different directions until you go around the diamond to Jesus and you pay attention to where he looks and then you will notice that there are not four different directions in which these 
For look, there are in fact only two. It is Thomas alone who looks in one place and the two who believe look in the exact same place that Jesus is looking. And here is where the artist, in a very magnificent way, simplifies the message through his painting and for you and for me to teach those of us who believe where we should look when we are faithful to make room for people who doubt. If we take away the diamond, we'll see that the answer is we are meant to look in the same place which Jesus looks, which is at Jesus' hand, the one which he uses to take care of the doubt of that person that we love and care about. That's where Jesus is looking because Jesus wants you and he wants me to know that it's okay that we don't need to be overwhelmed by anxiety or fear or stress because of the doubt that exists in the people we love very much. And I know this is hard for some of us to hear because doubt in some of our beloved family members is hard. So if that's where you are, look at Jesus' hand. The left hand is the one that Jesus uses to grab a hold of Thomas and take care of him. And you can trust that Jesus will take care of the doubter. And we, as a church, can trust that Jesus will take care of the doubter. We don't need to pretend we don't believe in Jesus to make this a place that's sensitive to people who don't believe. If you ask my opinion, that's an insult to people who don't believe. Okay, they can handle our honest faith, and they should, and we should look at Jesus. And then the second vantage point of Thomas, if you look again at where Thomas looks here, it is at the two places that he said he needed to see before he'd believe in Jesus. That is, the wound in his side and the wound in his hand. And the line from Thomas's eye goes across both. And, and there's only one reason why Thomas's vision goes to both. It's because Jesus comes and shows up and does what needs to be done for Thomas to see. Now listen to what happens after Thomas makes his expression of faith. Because I want to be honest now. If you and I began to think, well then, is Jesus going to show up in the flesh so that I also can touch him because that's what I need to see? I think the answer will be no. I think Jesus will come back in the flesh. I do believe this. The, the New Testament talks about a day when he'll return. And I look forward to that. Because of God's grace, I look forward to that. But between now and then, some of you might say, well, I've wanted to actually see him physically and I can't. What about me? What about them? Because you might say, well, I need to see this and that and it hasn't happened yet. Well, what about that? Look at what happens next after Thomas makes his tremendous... Uh, Statement of faith. In verse 29, now Jesus gets to talk. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And obviously the answer is yes. Uh, Thomas is able to trust in the resurrection because he's seen the body there. And then Jesus goes on to add, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And Jesus said that because he knew that in his own day, in that time, there would be others who would be able to come and believe but who had not seen Jesus as Thomas and the others had. They would be blessed. They would be supremely happy and free and glad. And the truth is, even then, many came to believe and trust Jesus, even though they hadn't seen. And, and whatever that means then, for us now, it's very obvious here that you and I, many of us will have been in the position where we can say, yes, we like they are blessed because we've come to believe even though we haven't seen and if that's where you are this morning, then with me, because that's where I am, you can say, yes, I indeed understand the pronouncement over me from Jesus. I feel blessed. Uh, it's not me. I'm just so thankful that God has given me the ability to trust him. 
If that's you, would you take glory in that fact for just a moment silently? Isn't it good? But then what if it's not you? What if you still need to believe and you want to? Look at how John continues. This is a a very critical statement about what we've seen today and what we've seen in the past weeks. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. That is, here John, the author of the gospel, is admitting that there were lots of other things that happened and I didn't choose to write about them. There are lots of other things that happened with Jesus and I decided not to put them in here, which begs the question, well, why did you choose these ones? And the answer in verse 31, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. That is, John's telling us, the reason I decided to recount this specific event is so that you would see it and that you would believe and your doubt would go and you would trust in Jesus and you would have life in his name. Uh, If you were here at the very first week, you may remember that that's how I started. And I started there because, in fact, all of the scenes that we've, we've observed together, all of them, were presented so that you would see Jesus and so that seeing you would believe and so that believing you'd have life in his name. It's what we were made for. For those of us who've come to that place and grown a bit in these past weeks, let us be glad and thank God and secondly, let us do everything within our power to make space for those who doubt and to keep our eyes on Jesus. And then for those of us who have not yet come to believe and it's been too much and we can't, my invitation is to stay to stay with the community that believes. Be honest about your doubt. Tell God what you need to see. Tell him. Talk about it with others. And see if the truth that is exposed here for us doesn't come for you. It is my prayer that it will. And, and as long as I'm the lead pastor at Renaissance, I would ask you as a church to join me in that hope for everyone who doubts. Can we do that together? Yes. Let's ask God to bless that desire in us and let's thank him for the week's that have been behind us and for the weeks that are ahead. Let's pray. God, for the chance to see together the gift that has come to the world in Jesus Christ, that's come as he's decided not to resist arrest, but rather let himself be arrested as Judas betrayed him. In fact, the decision to hand himself over for us, God, for the gift that that has meant for us and for everyone, we give you great praise and thanks for taking the death that was ours in our place and then for rising again so that we could have life in your name. We give you great praise and thanks. We thank you that we can be a community that is gathered and that we can trust that you are among us when we gather. God, help us feel your presence now. For those of us who believe, God, may we be people who are grateful and may we have eyes that are open and hearts that are open for those who cannot believe like Thomas. God, for everyone who cannot believe, would you cause us to trust you as we are welcomed by the rest of this community. And then as we articulate what we need, would you make yourself known so that we can come to believe that you are Messiah and have life in your name. God, these are the prayers which we offer up in your name. Help us where we cannot believe. Make us grateful where we can in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to ask you to stand now uh, because together uh, we're going to express our, our heart before God in song. So let's do that. Let's, let's sing together. I pray 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all who are seeking to follow him what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God himself. Now, to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or even imagine. To him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a good word to end this series with, this art of seeing Jesus. I myself am sad that it's done, but it opens the way for something new and exciting ahead of us. Next week, there will be a dozen people who choose to go into the waters of baptism here at Renaissance Church as we worship. That is going to be amazing. That's worth applauding. It is to praise God for that. There will be different people at different services. And I said this in the first service, and I'll say it again. If I were you, I would show up for all three. I'm serious because the gift of seeing people live their faith like that, and if they do, I'm in trouble and I'm to blame because there will not be enough space but some of you are called to do that, to come and watch your brothers and sisters say, it's time for me to go into the water and accept God's gift of new life. And that'll happen next week. The week after that, my friend Vito, one of my very best friends, he's preached here once or twice, he'll be here preaching and, and lead us as we worship together. I will be working this week and next week and the next on what I'm gonna do next after that. The week after that, a new series I'll begin. And I'll tell you, I'm gonna give you this preview. I hate how messed up the world is right now. And all I keep thinking of is what will make the world right. I want to know. And the answer that keeps coming back is it's simple. It's when people like you and me live our faith out day in and day out in simple ways. And that's what I want to try to help us see starting in a few weeks, that God will change the world when we just live as people who believe. And so two more things I want to say, okay? The first is I love being your pastor. I'm so thankful and I love being with you. And the second thing is, I hope that on your way out, you'll greet someone today and say hello uh, and have an absolutely magnificent week. And so I want to say, God bless you in the name of Jesus, who is alive and with us, even when we can't see it. God bless you.